Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I don't have any comments for today, and so that just shows I'm ready, but you're not. So please get some comments in there if you can. Well, last week I ended the program with some facts about George Washington's military career. Now, his military career had begun when he was really young. He would have been about 22 to 23 when he was commissioned to lead Virginia's colonial soldiers against the French in the French and Indian War. Now, that uh, can seem like it's an ancient history, but it was a very important war and uh, really helped to get the colonies established. Now, one thing about George Washington, he really did not win several of the major battles he was involved in. But just as Winston Churchill learned more about war in the trenches of World War I, George Washington was being educated and trained to win the most important war for all Americans, and that was the American Revolutionary War. Paul Johnson has a lot to say, really, about his military career, and I thought, I thought we ought to just read some of it today right from Johnson. So I'm going to start on page 30. And again, this, this is really just, it's really fascinating history. Now, um, I don't know if we talked about this in our last two programs, but George Washington was an inveterate writer. He kept massive journals, and uh, uh, he kept all of the letters that he had written over his, really, his long life. And so that's why we know so much about him. But here's how Washington himself described his first taste of action. It's, uh, Johnson writes, Washington described his first taste of action in a letter to his brother Jack. It found its way into the London magazine, where an unscrupulous sub-editor decided to liven up the narrative by enlarging on the author's statement that he was not daunted by the battle. Now, here's kind of like the fake news at that time, but here's what this, uh, this sub-editor added. He said, I heard the bullets whistle, and believe me, there is something charming in the sound. Now, now that's supposedly the fake news or the fake made-up. Now, much later, and I don't know if we talked about this directly in our Churchill programs, actually Churchill wrote something similar to that. And again, of course, it was all trumped up and, and made to look like he was a warmonger. But here's what Johnson, he continues now. He says, the phrase is highly uncharacteristic of Washington, who took fighting seriously, and it's hard to imagine any real soldier writing it. Now, this had implications in, in England itself. Uh, Johnson continues, It infuriated George II, who read the article, and who was very proud of his own act of service, especially at the bloody battle of Minden. He exclaimed, By God, he would not think bullets charming if he had been used to hear many. So, so in some ways, that's what happens with fake news. Uh, it gets everybody, or maybe it gets uh, some people alarmed. It can get the person involved in trouble, and of course, that's why President Trump is so against uh, fake news. And just recently, he took on sixty minutes, 
And of course, uh, Leslie Stahl did not really care much for what uh, he had to say. But he really, I thought he really did a good job of, of really putting the pressure on the media for a chance. Now, uh, Johnson goes on and says, in fact, the young colonel soon had his fill of hard hand-to-hand fighting and tasted the bitterness of defeat not once but twice. And so, so I think I did mention last time that he probably lost more battles than he won, especially when, as a young soldier. But, but can you imagine, as a very young man, he's already a colonel. So, so he obviously had some really good military skills. And, of course, we know he had great logic. It says, on July 3rd, 1754, outnumbered and surrounded at Fort Necessity, he was obliged to surrender but succeeded in extricating his men with their arms. Soundly beaten, as he put in his diary, on his return he received the thanks of the Virginia House of Burgesses. His second defeat was in the company of the luckless General Braddock, put in charge of a column of British regulars with order to take Fort Duquesne. And of course, now that, that is in that Pennsylvania area where I grew up. Washington wrote Braddock a powerful letter, and on receiving it, the general put the young but experienced Virginian on his staff with the rank of colonel. The expedition, however, was rashly conducted by Braddock, who was defeated and killed at the Forks. Washington was less critical of the general than others. His conduct, he said, was put in a worse light than it deserves. So, so even uh, George Washington, even when he became president, he had to deal with the media. And uh, uh, the, the media didn't always put him even in a favorable light when he was president. Now, Johnson continues, but he thought some of the British troops behave with more cowardice than it is possible to conceive. And so, so here, George Washington, uh, he, he looked at the British troops and he saw that, well, some of them were really, really uh, cowards and they weren't really fighting as hard as they could have. But he says, uh, Johnson continues, by comparison, the Virginian militiamen were stalwart. He wrote home, I luckily escaped without a wound, though I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me. He referred to our shameful defeat, which really was so scandalous that I hate to have it mentioned. He himself behaved not only gallantly, but with great energy and resource, took charge of the remnant and got them home. And so so here, George Washington was a great fighter. And again, he didn't win, let's say, all the battles he would have liked to. But again, he was getting trained. He was getting trained to do the right thing. Now, I want to just uh, continue here a little bit with what Johnson says about his military reputation. Johnson says, His personal reputation was now such that he was made a full colonel and made commander-in-chief of all the Virginian troops at the age of 23. He learned many valuable lessons from these experiences, particularly to take defeat in his stride and to be determined and ready to fight another day. I mean, to me... If you listen to the Churchill programs, it sounds just like Churchill. It was vital training for his Revolutionary War experiences. To lose a skirmish or even a battle did not mean you lost the war. Indeed, in this case, he eventually had the satisfaction of leading one of the three brigades that took Duquesne or renamed Fort Pitt. Now, Fort Pitt is the, or or it was in the park, uh, and again, it, there wasn't much of it left, but uh, uh, Fort Pitt was 
I, I walked past that every day going to school uh, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh. It says uh, uh, he was part of the three brigades that took Fort Pitt, destroyed the French forces, and drove them off Virginian territory and out of the Ohio Valley. This ended the war so far as Washington and Virginia were concerned, and he was able to retire with honor. And so, so uh, let's say this, he, he, when he did win, he won the right battles. And so, it, you know, it is, it is really interesting that, that here even Paul Johnson says that, well, he was learning. He was learning as he was going. Um, just to drop down the page here a little bit, it says, by the time Washington returned home from the French Wars, he was a notable figure, a man of evident and rare distinction, and we, uh, uh, I'll read this uh, description of him again at the end of this program. So Washington was really a very great soldier. Now, I think I even mentioned the last program that after his death, he was named General of the Armies of the United States. So no American military leader can ever outrank him. Now, what I want to do for the rest of today's program is I want to finish my introduction of Paul Johnson's book, George Washington, Founding Father. And so next time we'll move on to some some different things. But uh, today, let's open with our facts about um, his marriage to Martha. Now, again, uh, we do have evidence that, of course, uh, George Washington had fallen in love with some other people. And, of course, he, he had, you know, we have a lot of his letters, so they know this, that he wrote letters to, to other women. But... Uh, uh, the woman he really fell in love with and the woman that that he wanted to marry was, uh, a, a, she was a widow. And, of course, we know her best as Martha Washington. But let me just continue now. This is the bottom of page 33. And so, so again, this is all following on the, the, the military career. It says, Washington impressed men and women almost equally. Having defeated the French, the war in Virginia was virtually over by 1758. He was ready to become a farmer in earnest and take up his duties as a vestryman. Now, if you don't know what that means, a vestryman was on the council of the Anglican Church. And so he would have been over the finances and, and how they dealt with finances in the, uh, the Anglican Church in his area. But anyway, he was a vestryman, he was justice of the peace, and he was a burgess. So, so he really was in governmental positions. He says, all this and his need for cash and property to develop his inherited estates pointed to a prudent marriage, and Washington made one. Martha Dandridge was a rich widow. Her husband, Daniel Park Curtis, had died in 1757, leaving her 18,000 acres of land, property worth 40,000 pounds, and two small children. Now, I think... Uh, if, if we understand that, that's a lot of money and a lot of wealth. She was nine months older than Washington and tiny by comparison. She was only four feet, 11 inches tall with dark brown hair, hazel eyes, a large nose, tiny hands and feet, a soft rounded woman, talkative, generous, kindly, and efficient in all she undertook. From Washington's accounts, it looks as if his courtship was deliberate rather than fortuitous and that he set out to woo and marry this valuable and desirable woman whose assets fitted perfectly into his own. Now, Johnson goes on to say it's, it's, uh, 
He didn't just marry her for her money. But he said the marriage was not without love, however. The colonel treated her first to last as a great lady and deferred to her on many matters close to his heart and strongly held opinions, for instance on slavery, where her views were more conventional than his, and entertaining, where her expansive, indeed lavish, inclination were probably irksome to begin with, though he got used to them. She devoted herself entirely to his comfort and career and soon learned to call him my old man. And so so we're going to, uh, when we get into the 60-plus panel, we're going to talk a little bit more on Martha Washington and what we know about her. And I'm going to let my wife bring that information into these programs. But again, she seems to me, from from what I've been reading about them, about George and about Martha, is she really was was a great lady, and she was the great first lady of this country. And, uh, you know, she knew how to entertain. She knew how to support her husband. And, uh, you know, they did work together. She she was a great uh, counselor to him. Now, Johnson talks about uh, there was one problem in their marriage that uh, in the end did not turn out to be a problem. But it, it, uh, it probably was, you know, somewhat of a stress in the marriage. Now he goes on, this is page 34 now, it says, The marriage must be rated, contented, constructive, and edifying, though in no sense romantic. Now I don't know if, uh, if I could agree with an historian's view of that. For one reason, we know that, that Johnson wasn't there. Also, um, even if we do have his letters, um, not everybody has to be overly poetic to be romantic. So there's... There's a lot of things about George Washington that he kept very private, and I would think probably his romantic views of his wife would be one of those. Now, he goes on to say, but what it did not produce, talking about the marriage, this is Johnson now, what it did not produce, however, was children. On this point, our evidence is virtually non-existent. Neither, so far as we know, ever complained. She destroyed, and talking about Martha, she destroyed all but two of his letters to her, and he kept fewer of hers than might have been expected from a man so costive of documents. There is only one possible clue. Among the hundreds of items ordered from London, many of them for her children, which included a child's fiddle, a coach and six in a box, a stable with six horses, six little books, satin ribbon, a salmon-colored tabby, ruffles to be made of Brussels lace, six pounds of perfume powder, there was a mysterious order for a consignment of cantharides. This was the pharmacological name of a dried beetle, vulgarly known as Spanish fly, used internally as a diuretic and a stimulant of the genitourinary organs. It was considered to be an aphrodisiac and might be termed the 18th century equivalent of Viagra. This is just what uh, uh, Johnson knows from the reading. Um, now, he goes on to say, whether or not Washington swallowed down repeated provocations, no child appeared. But there were plenty of children at Mount Vernon. And so so why they ordered this, you know, people are just um, uh, making their well, conjectures. I have another one that we'll talk about here in just a minute from Mental Floss that could indicate that uh, why maybe Washington could have been infertile. 
But Jonathan goes on to say, whether or not Washington swallowed down repeated provocations, no child appeared. But there were plenty of children at Mount Vernon, beginning with his stepdaughter Patsy and his stepson Jackie, both of whom Washington became passionately fond. In due course, there were five step-grandchildren and five step-great-grandchildren, not to mention 25 nephews and nieces. Washington himself came from a large family that included two married brothers and a married sister and two cousins who were close. One of them, Lund Washington, looked after Mount Vernon in his absence. Martha, in addition, had two sisters and two brothers plus various nieces and nephews. So Washington, in effect, had a large family, many of whose members constantly stayed at his house and made it ring with noisy games and childish laughter. He loved children was at his best with them, and his life was never lonely. It, it really does seem that, um, you know, he did have a very, very happy marriage. Now, the next point I want to make is, and this is this is brought out by Mental Floss, is that, that George Washington is probably one of the sickliest presidents. And this might, might actually lead us to, um, to understand maybe why he could not... Um, let's say, uh, give Martha children or give Martha more children. Uh, This is what Mental Floss has to say. It says, throughout his life, Washington suffered from a laundry list of ailments, diphtheria, tuberculosis. Remember, his brother Lawrence died of tuberculosis, smallpox, dysentery, malaria, quincy, carbuncle, pneumonia, epiglottis, to name a few. And so so it, it seemed like um, you know, people at that time, um, you know, they really, they really did die young, and they really did have a lot of illness. And uh, there, there is, um, you know, a case to be made that because he had tuberculosis, uh, depending on how severe the case was, um, it, it, the fact that he had tuberculosis could be one of the reasons why uh, George Washington could have been infertile. Now, here's what, what uh, Mental Floss says here. This is a quote they're quoting uh, from a um, doctor's report. It says, Classic studies of soldiers with tuberculosis pleurisy during World War II demonstrated that two-thirds developed chronic organ tuberculosis within five years of their initial infection. Infection of the epididymis, or testes, is seen in 20% of these individuals and frequently results in infertility. So, so the thing is, uh, George Washington obviously not only was protected. If you remember back to when he was a military soldier, you know he was shot four times, and it, the bull, the, the bullets went through his coat but never entered his body. So, so it is it is interesting that here he did have tuberculosis, but he survived it. His brother did not. And so it could have been the, the reason why he and Martha could not have children. But just, just as another aside, um, George Washington really did have a lot of trouble with his teeth. And if you look at the paintings of him, I mean, they were, these are all professional paintings. And if you, look at, if you look at his picture on the dollar bill, that is from a very famous painting of George Washington. But... It, it uh, the facts are that when George Washington took the oath of office for the presidency, he only had one tooth left in his mouth. 
So that's probably why he always keeps his mouth. Whenever you see a painting of him, his mouth is always closed. And of course, uh, you know, he did work very hard to conceal his true feelings about many things. Uh, I just thought that's that's kind of an interesting fact there, that uh, that here he did not have uh, many teeth left in his mouth. And also, mental floss brings out that, that he did not have wooden dentures, as so many people believe. Now, um, the other thing is um, uh, this... Uh, the more the uh, the mental floss brings out is that that George Washington really was a very moral man. I mean, he he really believed in morality, and he he tried to live, you know, a very very upstanding life. Here's what mental floss says about him: It says, according to Washington biographer Edward Lengel, he was a a, um, a very moral man. He was very virtuous. He watched carefully everything he did, but he certainly doesn't fit into our conception of a Christian evangelical or somebody who read his Bible every day and lived by a particular Christian theology. We can say he was not an atheist on the one hand, but on the other hand, he was not a devout Christian. And uh, even Johnson brings out in his book that uh, you know he, he, he does make comments like, well, wow, you may have been surprised to see me at at uh, church last Sunday. Now I'm I'm interpreting that um, a lot of the them, them believe that Sunday was the Sabbath, which we know Saturday is the Sabbath. So as we can say, uh, as Menelaus says, we can say he wasn't an atheist. Now we we also know that he was a Freemason, and so he is very dedicated to Freemasonry. Which, uh, which I think many people know is really quasi-religious, and uh, um, it's not my intent to go into a whole discussion of Freemasonry. But, uh, you know, there, there's this famous painting of him kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge to pray, and uh, uh, according to this biographer Langle, uh, Langle says, and this is a quote, that's a story that was made up by another Washington biographer, Parson Weems. And so so the thing is, uh, uh, a lot of our founding fathers were, were really more deists than they were like pure Anglican. And, uh, you know, even Ben Franklin, I think he, and we've talked about him before, and I think he, he saw through some of what the Anglican church was really about. And, uh, of course, uh, he just stopped going to... Uh, you know, to church on Sunday, and he, but but he again, he definitely believed there was a God, and he definitely believed that uh, you know God was Creator, and uh, but they uh, they maybe they saw through religion more than people do today. Um, he he went on to say, this is from from the, this um, uh, mental floss, it says while George would attend church, Washington wouldn't take communion. According to biographer Barry Schwartz, Washington's practice of Christianity was limited and superficial because he he was not himself a Christian. Now, I don't know if I would consider that. Um, again, um, you know, I think uh, some biographers can take things too far, but I, I'm I'm sure he was uh, certainly well versed in the Bible, and uh, uh, you know, he he certainly. Uh, to have a moral standard, a high moral standard, you have to have some belief in God. Uh, 
Um, uh, again, Mental Floss goes on to say, in the enlightened tradition of his day, he was a devout deist, just as many of the clergymen who knew him uh, had suspected. And so so uh, we have to be careful that we don't say, well, George Washington was a leading evangelical, because that just would not be true. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, the 60-plus panel will begin our discussion of why knowing George Washington matters. Now, remember, our third and final book in this series is Hero, the Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. Now, you can find both books on Amazon. You can find used copies of the books at abebooks.com. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. Remember, you can leave me a comment at Facebook. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.